This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you A-B test what gets the most opens and the most clicks and let this AI algorithm run wild, at the end of the day, your emails will say, Michelle Obama was just kidnapped. Give me $5. You know, people talk all the time, like, when are computers going to take over? I say computers have already taken over. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And over the last several months, the topic of political fundraising has popped up in various episodes and segments. And right now I'm thinking about one Politicology Plus segment we did where it came up in a discussion about the business incentives of the outrage economy. Uh, That was back on November 4th, if you care to take a listen. But now, if you've been listening to us for a while, you might recognize that because of my background, a lot of the guests we have on Politicology share an unusual set of skills and a kind of shorthand that comes out when we discuss running campaigns and winning elections. So one of those things is around fundraising. So I thought it might be interesting to pull back the curtain a bit for you and explain how the business of political fundraising actually works now, how it has changed, and most importantly, how it impacts races and who actually wins power. So to do that, I asked my friend Danny Hogenkamp to step away from his duties running his thriving political tech startup uh, to chat for a little while. So Danny grew up in Rutland, Vermont, when he was 23, while he was working on a congressional campaign, Danny founded a company called Grassroots Analytics, and that is a data company dedicated to breaking down barriers to civic engagement and nonprofit development by building tech tools for candidates and causes across the country. And in four years, Grassroots has grown from zero to 50 employees worked with over a thousand campaigns across all 50 states, and they have created innovative campaign tools like left.tech, which is a one-stop shop for candidates and nonprofits looking for resources. So, Danny, first of all, thanks for making the time. Of course, happy (laughs) happy to be on. And welcome to Politicology. And before we step into the Sausage Factory, you run a DC pickup basketball league that just got a huge profile in Washingtonian magazine. Like, how does that happen? I do. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> man, when I first moved to DC, uh, I'm always looking for a good pickup game and, uh, sort of put together a league in my neighborhood, Shaw. Now we got around 200 folks that play regularly. It's a great mix of both like local high school students all the way up to 30 or 40 year old professionals. It's a pretty high quality run, and uh, <laughs> the Washingtonians, some some folks that were in the league, were like, "This is a pretty cool space, uh, very interesting crowd." And the article was uh, actually a bit on like a how the game is a microcosm of gentrification in the Shaw neighborhood, yeah. which I wasn't aware when they were asking us questions. That's how it was going to go. But uh, listen, uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool scene, and if you ever want to play, let me know. <laughs> if we and we should know as we're sitting here. Danny, you're taller than me, I think. Six, yeah, I'm 6'6". Six, 6'6". Six. Six, six. I'm 6'4", six, and Danny's one of the very few people I technically look up to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, okay, so why don't we do this? Um, background, uh, set the stage. Um, why don't we start by laying out the traditional role of fundraising consultants on a campaign 
the influence they have. And, you know, as you're thinking about the, the life cycle of a political campaign, where they fit in the timeline of putting together a campaign operation and why that's important. Um, do you want to, do you want to just set the table for us and give us a, uh, sort of the, the landscape and political fundraising? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, folks decide to run for office and before you ever launch your campaign, you usually would contact some sort of organization that helps people run, whether that's like run for something. Emily's list for democratic women is like an excellent example. And they'll all tell you the same thing. It's like, you got to put up, if you're, I, I like to talk about say an Emily's list candidate running for a U.S. Congress seat in what would be an open democratic primary where lots of people are going to run. And Emily's list will tell you like, listen, your first quarter, everyone's going to judge how serious of a candidate you are in your first quarter. And the only real metric that campaigns in the first quarter put up is fundraising numbers. And that's what we're going to hold you to. I think these days, Emily's list probably expects, depending on where you live in the country, three hundred dollars to $500,000 in the first quarter. So those are the first few months that you run for office for them to consider you viable and for them to consider endorsing you. Now, a lot of folks think that's like a biased, bad way to decide who candidates are. You know, I agree and I disagree. On, on some level, you have to judge whether or not someone's taking running for office seriously. And that's the easiest way to judge. Obviously, it's biased against working class folks, folks that don't have a lot of financial connections and folks that come from disadvantaged communities. Um, that being said, Emily's List will connect you with one of the thousands of fundraising consultants that they have, uh, usually folks that used to work for Emily's List or something like that. And that person would help you build a plan to raise that three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in the first quarter for those national organizations like Emily's List to consider you viable. First step, fundraising consultant would do help you plan a launch, help you hire a staffer, and then the big thing is they help you Rolodex, which is call your own families and friends and say, "Hey, I'm going to run for Congress. Would you consider giving me five hundred thousand dollars, twenty nine hundred? That's the the current max." And uh, yeah, they basically. Uh, build out a plan for you to raise that money. Now, almost always that plan entails 50 hours of call time a week, calling rich people in your district, rich people in your Rolodex and asking them for money. Um, 50 hours of call time a week. It's more than a full-time job. It's way more than yeah. a full-time job. Uh, being a candidate, <laughs> Just to raise the money. Being yeah. a candidate is an 80-hour week job, which we tell people. And I mean, a lot of them don't believe us. And, <laughs> and then they only believe us when they're not raising enough money because they're not doing enough call time. But um, yeah. And, and, and a lot of folks it, within that first month of running for office, they, they get weeded out of this process. They're like, this is yeah. too much for me. A lot of people don't like begging rich people for money, which is effectively what being a congressional candidate is. Especially on the house side. Especially on the house side. Right. Everything changes a little when you move down ballot to like state house, city council, or it changes a little when you move up ballot to like governor, Senate, but the house race, I mean, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, this is okay. It's important to note. This isn't just Emily's list. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the rest of the democratic infrastructure yeah. and how that ecosystem works, but coming from the right side of that equation, it's very, very similar. It's exactly the same. Basically, if you're sitting, and I worked at the National Republican Senatorial Committee where, you know, we're sort of, we are triaging the Senate races for Republicans around the country and trying to make decisions about where to spend money. And at the beginning of that cycle, it's always about who can put, who can put a big splash in the bank right off the bat and that's that's what makes you viable. Yeah, right? I'm just using Emily's list because they're the most powerful and most common organization on the left. On the left. Okay. I mean, you could say that it's about Victory Fund. You could yep. say this about League of Conservation Voters. There's all sorts of gun rights candidates who Brady Brady and uh, every town sort of talk through this process. And then on the right, um, you know, at least 
Stefanik. Yep. I used to have, honestly, more respect for her because she was <laughs> trying to do the bring the Emily's List model to Republican primaries yeah. to get more women through, yeah. which is an honorable goal. Then obviously Trump happened and she sort of. I remember. Yeah. Very yeah. Well. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We actually just talked about her on the roundup last week, the whole segment. Yeah. Because the New York Times ran a big profile on her for exactly that reason, that sort of Trumpian transformation. Yeah. I, but at the same time, she's made that Trumpian transformation. Elise has very successfully gotten more women through Republican primaries. So she's succeeding in an admirable goal and has made this pretty horrible political pivot at the same But anyway. So what about the national? party committees because it you know one of the one of the things that at least on the right i've observed the last like 10 years is it used to be that the national party committees held all the power when it came to who got to run for office who got through the front door right you had to go court those people before you got their stamp of approval you could count on their support in the in the campaigns um now that has become much more i guess you could call it democratized but the influence has really spread out outside of the official party committees to folks like, you know, on the left, Emily's List, and on the right, you've got um, like Club for Growth, or you've got other serious kingmakers in, in, that are outside of the official party structure. What does that look like? What is the role of the Democratic campaign committees now, and how much influence do they have over candidates that ultimately make it through the primaries? You know, I think tech, like the grassroots analytics tech we have, um, and just the advent of digital fundraising in general, emails, texting sort of uh, took power from central committees. Um, if I'm a candidate running for office and I have a really popular platform and I really connect well with like uh, Katie Porter is a great example. Like Katie Porter viscerally connects to suburban women who are now the backbone of the Democratic Party. And uh she sends out emails and texts and people love her and they support her and give her millions of dollars. So, you know, there is a California Senate primary happening. And hypothetically, back in the day, the DSCC would be the one who sort of anoints a king or right. queen um, in that primary. But Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, uh, Adam Schiff, they're all about to announce all without, I mean, I'm sure they're talking to people at DSCC, but the yeah. DSCC is just going to throw their hands up and be like, <laughs> yeah. and, and the, person who, stop you. the <laughs> person who wins that primary will be the person who best connects with the grassroots donors across the country. And I mean, those are three excellent candidates. That primary is about to be, maybe have the force of like a presidential primary yeah. and yeah. the amount of money. Like, yeah. I think they're all going to raise $10 million in the first quarter, <sighs> which is like what Buttigieg and, yeah. um, Gillibrand and yeah. folks were doing in the Democratic uh, yeah. 2020. Yeah. So this is exactly the thread I wanted to pull on for a bit because we've talked about, you know, so I used to do uh, internet fundraising. One of the things that Tusk did was internet fundraising for Republican candidates. And and uh, and there was always this tension from, uh, you know, between us and the old guard of campaign fundraising, which were the high dollar consultants, right? right? Because they were very threatened by this new democratization of grassroots fundraising, uh, where, where we, in, with a single email, we could raise what they spend two months preparing to raise at an event. And, um, and, and that, I think, has marked this huge transformation that has really flown under the radar in terms of how campaigns resource themselves. Um, so I want to talk about the work you were doing on a campaign when you had the idea uh, to, 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 that ultimately became grassroots analytics and, and 
I assume it was similar to what I, you know, to this tension between the old guard and the, but what made you say there's got to be a better way to do this? Well, I mean, in 2016, I went and worked on an Emily's List congressional and uh, got a lot of advice from them on best practices and best practices still involve like making a physical paper Rolodex and writing phone numbers down and having those papers in stacks calling through them. We were looking up phone numbers in the phone book for lawyers and doctors in the district just because we knew they had money, but most of them were Republicans and not giving us money. And I just, I had some tech background and I stumbled into an industry, high dollar fundraising, which was not computerized at all. Were these best practices like given to you from a Xerox machine? <laughs> I know, but uh, you call people and, and and you could still raise a lot of money with those practices. Yeah. Like the computerization yeah. of high dollar fundraising, you know, it, it's made a marginal inc- uh, improvement, maybe 40, 50%. It really depends on the candidate. Some candidates can raise just as much money calling through their Rolodex because yeah. their Rolodex is sick. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, for a lot of folks like Colleen, you know, Colleen was a Colleen Deacon who I worked for in 2016. I love Colleen. I, I think she's probably okay with me talking about her. <laughs> um, she was uh, came from a union family. You know, Syracuse is not a very wealthy area. She was like an amazing working class woman. And uh, she just didn't know a lot of people that were going to give $2,900. So we were calling random rich people in the district trying to get money. One of the things when we started building out, uh, computer system for, uh, you know, better informing and fundraising is we realized Colleen did much better on the phone with women. And at some point we just stopped calling men for a few weeks and the amount of money she was raising went way better. And it's like, that was a really easy thing we could learn from a computer. It's like, you do better calling women and talking. And so it's like, we just, you know, that was like a very basic improvement. And then being able to sort everyone's donor database and be like, these are the women, these are the women who support mostly women and pointing out things like that. Um, that was like the very beginning of all this. Now we have, you know, thousands of different data points that we can, uh, help folks sort on, um, all over the map. I mean, when we first met, our offices were down the hall from each other. And I remember the, (laughs) the, I don't know, like seven different screens that you had stacked up on top of each other in the, in the office, looking at all of those data points that, that that you had figured out a way to offer to, to candidates that optimize their fundraising. Mm -hmm. So the ultimate pitch was we can save you time fundraising, right. And we can make you more efficient fundraising. That's right. Yeah. We, and and now, you know, we have data, data was like sort of the, the, the beginning of grassroots analytics, but now we have, we own and operate a lot of the most productive, progressive fundraising tech tools. Like campaigns just come to us and say, I want to text. And we say, okay. And a lot of times our data is just informing these tech tools that we've built. Um, But yeah, I mean, we save candidates tons of time. We're able to raise them money a lot quicker. And then as you were pointing out earlier, we're able to raise them money from grassroots, low dollar donors in a way where you can run for office without being beholden to some mega donor in your district that says, I want you to take this policy position and you have to take that policy position. You know, uh, Maxwell Frost, I think we just worked with this year. And I think maybe he has the highest percentage of low dollar donations um, out of any of the candidates that want, or it's close to it in the top five. And it's just because he connected, he was like, listen, I worked with, um, you know, gun uh, March for our lives folks. I am a gun control organizer. And uh, he brought that message to all sorts of folks who care so much about this issue across the country. And they got 50 bucks, 20 bucks at a time. Um, and uh, and now he's going to go to Congress and there's no donor calling him and being like, I want you to take this vote. There, There is 
tens of thousands of gun control activists who want them to or want Maxwell to be a champion for them. And I just it's a more uh, and we'll be watching him very closely, but there's no single interest point right, that's going to yeah. be pulling the strings. Yeah. Let's go down this rabbit hole because you mentioned, you know, you were looking for doctors and lawyers in the district mm-hmm. who weren't donating because they were Republicans. We've seen a lot of shifts in how college-educated people vote in the last few election cycles. Mm-hmm. This is a major, major trend. Um, we've been discussing it a lot because of the sort of seismic scale of this. How have you seen changes in donations from more highly educated professionals? I mean, we have, I would say like 10% of the Democratic donor base are George Bush, Mitt Romney donors who are now Joe Biden and uh, Raphael Warnock. You know, uh, it's a really sizable part of the population. And that shift obviously spurred on by Trump. I mean, there's other factors going into it, but Trump was sort of the catalyst to really move those folks across the party lines. Um, It's a pretty sizable part of the population, 10%, but it's probably accounts for more than 40 or 50% of the money. It's, uh, you know, their top extremely influential wow. donors. Yeah. Wow. I, it reminds me of when Trump would boast about having, you know, 99% or 95% of the Republican party locked down and never going to leave him. But the thing that we always used to remind people was, yeah, but he's shrunk the party by about 10%. Right. He, he has struck the party, although, you know, there's a smaller percentage and they don't have that much money. Um, part of the the politically active base who has gone the other way that were Democrats. There's so many folks who especially that were in unions or involved mm-hmm. in sort of I'm trying to pick. I don't want to upset any yeah. unions no, here, this but is, there was a lot the, of unions where you could see in the data they like are giving membership money to yeah. their local union and they're like throwing $5 at Democratic candidates back in 2010 and 2012. And now those people are giving not big money, but, you know, $50, $100 checks to Trump. Um, We have lost, like, you know, Trump gained, I think probably by the numbers, gained a similar amount of people as he lost, but he lost very influential people and gained folks that, I mean, sadly don't have as much influence. This is so, this is so interesting to me because, I mean, I've lost track of the number of times we've we've come at this uh, this phenomenon from a from a survey research standpoint, from a practitioner. Standpoint. We've never actually looked at it directly from a fundraising standpoint. Mm-hmm. But the 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 shift in constituencies between the Democratic and Republican parties is what you're talking about now, along economic and education lines, uh, where 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 the with the Democratic Party is losing blue collar voters and gaining white collar professional voters yeah. and and obviously the inverse is happening at the uh at, on the republican side how how else have you seen that manifest in like uh in your client services like in in actually raising money for for democrats as far as the candidate i i think this plays out the most um when we talk about candidates getting through democratic primaries and with candidates getting through republican primaries you know there's this joke in dc that everyone makes which is maybe inappropriate and needs to be cut but (laughs) (laughs) the point you're making which is one that i've made and other guests have made on the show because it's real is that that's that there is a there is a profound and growing animosity toward elites and traditional elite signals like right. having gone to an Ivy League institution or having worked in, you know, the upper echelons of corporate America or whatever. Yeah. There's now, that's now a net negative for you in Republican primaries, yeah. right? Whereas it used to be the establishment, the preferred, the favorite. Um, it's now, it's now upside down. Yeah. And I would, and I would guess that on the Democratic side, a similar inversion is happening. Yeah, the Democratic side, we're getting better and better candidates. I, I always, uh, someone 
said once, I forget who this was. I don't want to, maybe it was like Amanda Lemon had run for something. They said, uh, you know, Trump was the best thing that ever happened to down ballot democratic politics because where in the past you would just get recruiting for our state Senate and recruiting for some of these red to blue house seats was really tough. And the D trip and Emily's list, all sorts of organizations go and recruit people. They deem quality representatives of their community to run for office. Um, and they would go out and reach out to these a listers, people who are like professional star athletes or CEOs. And they'd be like, Hey, do you want to run for state Senate? Do you want to run for Congress as a Democrat? And they'd be like, no, are you kidding me? I have way more ability to affect my community and impact change here in Texas um, running, being the CEO of this company or yeah. being a football player that's super involved in my community. Yeah. And then Trump got elected and all these extremely talented local figures were like, wow, our democracy is really in crisis. And folks like Colin Allred, who played for the Cowboys and is like a- Been on the show, actually. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> and Abigail Spanberger, who was like an extremely high up national security figure, who's an extremely talented woman was like, you know what? Maybe I will run for Congress. Um, all sorts and and just bringing in those high quality candidates that that was amazing. I mean, the other big thing that uh, sort of the Trump shift affected is Democratic donors now have more money than Republican donors. It used to be the case when I was growing up that people would be like, "Oh, Democrats would win if we only had more money. Republicans just outspend us and buy elections." I think uh, if, I think if you look yeah. at the data recently, Democrats are raising more money and spending more money, especially on yeah. competitive elections. So we actually have sort of a general election cash advantage now. You do. And I think part of that is, is again, not necessarily a Trump shift, but the fact that Trump keeps vacuuming up all of the, Dem all of the Republican grassroots money right. into his packs. Yeah. Right. And then who knows what the fuck they're spending it on. But, but that's that's a major. I mean, the NRSC commented on lots of Republicans have been frustrated at the president's, you know, unwillingness, former president's unwillingness to disgrace twice in peace, former president's unwillingness yeah. to to raise money for Republican causes. And I was yeah. just at a tech conference and I was talking to some of the Republican folks on the other side, which I I mean, you used to work in Republican digital fundraising. It's it's not it's I think it's a few years behind Democratic digital fundraising, which plays out as you said, in the very top candidates in Republican politics, Trump, DeSantis, have these very sophisticated digital arms that are able to communicate to all these donors before someone like Tim Scott or Doug Ducey is able to do that. So there's really, because the sophistication on the digital side isn't quite there yet on the Republican side, it gives more power to the very top figures in the party. Whereas on the Democrat side, we have House members like Maxwell Frost, we have Senate uh, candidates like John Fetterman, who are so popular that, and they're able to reach out to all of these donors and suck up attention that Joe Biden, I mean, a lot of these down ballot candidates are sucking up attention faster than like Joe Biden or the DNC or the DCCC yeah. Yeah. are able to. Yeah. Okay. But these are tools and we would be remiss to not mention the flip side of this phenomenon, which is that it, you can also, you end up with, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's opponents in a district that- yeah never going to win, never going to unseat her, raising a massive amount of money that is just going to be wasted, essentially. So you end up with these sort of like personality candidates that end up being very popular with grassroots donors. But the money in terms of like the utility of the spend is really being squandered where it could be put to use in other places. Right. I understand that argument. And obviously, I think uh, whenever you democratize a an industry, there are unforeseen externalities. Obviously, 
if you democratize it and there's not strong guard, I mean, there are some guardrails, but candidates who don't have a serious uh, chance of winning are able to raise a lot of money and use the the platforms that you've democratized. That being Beto, said, Stacy, I, I hear I hear all that, and then at the same time, I actually think you know something that I, that I'm so impressed that DeSantis does is DeSantis takes all of his money and he funnels it to school board, city council candidates, state house candidates all throughout Florida, a lot of them who have no chance of winning. But oh, I didn't for know that. The Democratic Party on a state level or the Democratic Party on a national level, it's like we should be running strong, well-funded candidates yeah. everywhere. It's like the reason we're losing Texas is not because Beto O'Rourke's not raising enough money. The reason we're losing Texas is because there's entire 10,000, 500,000 square miles parts of the state where there's no Democrat running, no Democrat raising any money, no Democrat knocking on any doors. So yeah, like Marcus Flowers raising $15 million, it's not great. But if that campaign is spending that money knocking doors and talking to folks in Northwest rural Georgia, where Democrats usually get crushed. Marcus Flowers, who ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Who ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene. If he registers a few thousand extra voters, you know, it's a lot of money to just only register a few thousand more voters. <laughs> get a few voters. Thousand. Like- it's not, it's like, there's still issues with yeah. this, but if we, inve- if, if Democrats are running strong candidates all throughout the country, that's, maybe that's what got Warnock yeah. over the line. I mean, how many votes did Warnock end up winning by? Yeah. I think most people in this space that have spent a lot of time thinking about it, at the end of the day, they come back to, you know, it would be great if we ran strong down ballot city council yeah. state house state senate candidates everywhere yeah and uh yeah most of them are going to lose and it's hard to recruit good candidates to be sacrificial yeah. lambs but it's going to help the folks running statewide it's going to help the ballot initiatives yeah it definitely energizes the base and we should be clear that this is not purely a function of a democratized fundraising environment it is it has a lot to do with media incentives and the way the news media cover these people and like we can't disc I think that's actually the bigger uh I I see it as a problem the way the the the, the way we news media loves to create celebrities out of yeah. these people who are not viable candidates really well I mean don't even get me started on this I, <laughs> I've talked to so many booking agents at CNN MSNBC all the time I think they are not even I think they're both aware and unaware of the power they have I a Rachel Maddow five minute segment that's worth a hundred thousand dollars and it's not like, oh, it might be worth $100,000. Like on average, it's $100,000. Sometimes it's way more. Sometimes it's way less. So who they choose to platform on Rachel Maddow, Joy Reid, um, uh, Jake Tapper, like who they choose to platform, they are giving an insane amount of money to. And they should only be inviting people on if they're comfortable that person receiving $100,000, $200,000 of their viewers' money. Marcus Flowers, I'm sure was on several of those segments. And that's something that if they had guardrails in place on those shows, they should probably be uh, taking into consider. You know, I don't want to put the blame fully on these yeah, shows. No, they have to not. have interesting people on, but uh, yeah, but also like people just hate Marjorie Taylor green, like anything to get rid of that woman, the margarine woman, right. As the, right? Like anything to get rid of her. So you could put a ham sandwich up there and it's not going to matter at that much. They're still going to give to this person. I say all the time, no, this is like a deep fundraising cut, but, the most powerful thing in fundraising is having a good foil. The top Senate raisers. We used for, to call them the boogeyman. Got to have a boogeyman. The, I call <laughs> I, yeah, Foil is not as good a term. I, maybe I should switch to boogeyman. The top Senate 
uh, fundraisers the last eight years have just been running against the least likable opponent. I believe this year it was Warnock. Uh, 2020, man, this is going to be hard for me to pull off. <laughs> going back, okay, 2018, it was Beto versus Ted Cruz. Yep. Uh, 2016, it was, was it Allison Lundgren Grimes against Mitch McConnell? Oh, my God. No. Wait, what? Was no. that 2014? It was 2014. No, you might be right. 2016, it was Ann Kirkpatrick versus John McCain. Yeah. It's literally the most, the people, the the senator that Democrats dislike the most, their opponent raises yeah. the most money. Yeah. And that's how it goes over. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Defunders and cut. Indeed. So how has the fundraising landscape changed over the last several election cycles and especially right as we're thinking about the ratio of small dollar to high dollar donations um and what i want to talk about what impact that has on how campaigns actually get run and the decisions that get made about where to allocate resources because you know it you it used to be back in the day in the before times it used to be that the high dollar fundraisers had they 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 had enormous influence over the campaign and especially the candidate where he or she goes who they talk to how they spend their time and all of that accumulates to enormous influence over campaign decisions and strategies so yeah i mean listen high dollar fundraising is still extremely important i think uh people um low dollar fundraising the the problem with low dollar we call problem, it low dollar here oh i want to i want to do i want to do this real quick because i would do this with with clients yeah. very often uh we we they the shorthand a lot of people use is low dollar fundraising but actually what i would tell them is no 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 this is grassroots fundraising because oh, what know, what yeah. happens what happens is they come and say no no that's a potential max out donor don't talk to them don't email them don't text them and i tell them Oh, actually, let's look at this person's giving history. The reason they're a max out donor is because they responded to a text and then an email and gave a hundred dollars over and over and over and over again. So you're welcome. Yeah. Right. So like this idea that low dollar versus high dollar means uh, like these are these are the people that I get to talk to. And these are the people that you can actually email. It's a a red herring. Yeah. I want to make two important points here. First is grassroots fundraising costs a lot of money. You have to spend money building out the texting infrastructure, the emailing infrastructure, buying the data to go out and communicate with, say, you're um, John Fetterman and, you know, you just have like a very online, kind of hard to target, very online um, working class uh, constituency that wants to uh, give you money. It's really hard to build that list and it takes a lot of money. So a lot of times, even if you become a grassroots fundraising champion, you need that high dollar money early to then invest in building your grassroots donor operation. So high dollar fundraising remains incredibly important. I think grassroots, we do offer a lot of tools to campaigns where you don't need to give us money up front and we'll help start building your low dollar donor base. Um, and we take a percent fee and we, we're sort of set apart there. The other big grassroots thing I would mention is like, there are a lot of folks on the left talk about how they don't want to do call time, which I agree from an ethical level. Um, it would be great if members of Congress didn't have to spend tens of hours a week doing call time. I do think that if they sat down and did call time and talked to some of these uh, wealthier but still very progressive individuals throughout the country, they, one, wouldn't hate it, and two, they would end up doubling, tripling the amount of money they're raising each year, which they could then share with other progressives running for office and build that coalition. These members of Congress, what a lot of times what people don't realize is how you grow in leadership in Congress and how you gain power as a member of Congress is raising money 
and then giving it to candidates who are running for competitive seats across the country so that when some of those candidates do win, they're like, man, do I owe a favor to Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem Jeffries has been so active for a decade helping candidates raise money in red to blue seats all across the country. And now you know why- Which has propelled him to the top of the leadership chain, right? Like, I mean, listen, yeah. there's yeah, there's a school of thought that uh, the Democratic leadership and Republican leadership are just the best fundraisers. I tend to think that's true. Nancy Pelosi, prolific fundraiser. Chuck Schumer, prolific fundraiser. From one perspective, it's like the person that's the best fundraiser in the tech Bay Area is one Democratic leader. And the person that's uh, the best fundraiser from New York City, which is the world's financial hub, is the other. And yeah. So I, anyway. There's a lot to, there's absolutely a lot to that. Especially, I mean, certainly on the right. I mean, well, the way we used to think about it on the right was like, who is doing the most to advance Republican victories? Right. Who is actually moving the needle the most? And all obviously that comes like the thing that you can do is put money in campaign coffers. So it ends up being, yeah, by 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 that measure, we're going to figure out uh, like what the leadership circles look like. I mean, McCarthy and McConnell are the best fundraisers. While we're talking about how the fundraising demic has changed. How do you, and we had a whole conversation about this and we touched on it when I meant like the news media and the incentives of the news media um, are particularly, I think, problematic um, for, for all for all kinds of reasons. But and, you know, we've been calling it the outrage economy. How do you think the outrage economy or however you want to characterize it um, and the increase in hyper performative politics uh, has changed the way campaigns raise money. And I guess this, I guess this gets to, you know, the, the, the dark side of this new paradigm that we're now living in. Um, but, but how do you think about that? In grassroots fundraising, all of the money is responding to the news and what is on CNN and what's on MSNBC. So part of that is one, when a news thing breaks, you try and get on MSNBC, CNN, Adam Schiff was just one of the top fundraisers this past cycle. Um, sort of out of nowhere, like he was a pretty good fundraiser, but because he was involved with the impeachment and whenever impeachment news happened, he was the first one on CNN, MSNBC, you know, like I said, it's a hundred grand, 200 grand a hit. Um, and all the money is in responding to that news. The problem is, you know, impeachment is extremely worthwhile news and I have no faults with Adam Schiff for totally. putting himself out there. He's and been responding. on the show also. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. great. Like you should respond yeah. to that. Jamie Raskin. Similarly, it's like, these are constitutional law experts who are sitting right on top of this issue. The problem is when the news gets into Trump responding to Trump tweets, or um, it often encourages people to say really salacious or outlandish things because they know that will get them attention, which will then get them on these news segments or get them retweeted to the moon on Twitter. Um, It does create some misincentives for people to be extreme and salacious yeah. and and then personal attacks, stuff like that, which is, I, I think, fairly unhelpful to our democracy. Yeah. And now we see this playing out on the floor of the House of Representatives where it took us way too long to elect a Speaker of the House. Uh, but similar for, for, for performative incentives to to like grab the grab the camera, make sure it's focused on you because you're about to assault a member on the on the House floor. Right. There's a reason that these things work. Right. They end up fueling fundraising. And I'm like, follow the money. This is, this is, this is one of the, this is the dark side of this new paradigm. Yeah. The social, I mean, so not like I've talked a little bit about CNN, MSNBC, Fox news, like how these, uh, 
media companies reward people yeah. for saying social media does this times, <laughs> times 50 yeah. <laughs> in way worse ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah. working in this industry has led me to delete all social media, try and use the internet as little as possible. Same. I do too. I talk I, about like, this nonstop. Yeah. It's from being in this space. I'm like, wow, social media is ruining our country. Yeah. It is terrible for everyone. One, all these people that spend all their, all, maybe this is too incendiary, but all these people that uh, spend their time on social media, if you sit down with most of them and point out how much time they spend on social yep. media, they're like, gosh, darn it. I wish I spent way less time on this thing. Yeah, that's on an interpersonal level. It's terrible for us. And then for our democracy, the reward mechanisms for people doing crazy stuff is it's it's just terrible in in, in aggregate. It's really it it really creates a toxic environment. Um, Anyway. okay. so um, I think it's safe to assume uh, that most, if not all of our listeners uh, have have at some point given their email address or their phone number to a campaign. Um, you know, and, and sometimes I, I think I mentioned this trick, uh, maybe it was a couple months ago when we were talking about this. Um, you know, one of the things I, I used to do and still do, if I'm ever going to give money to somebody or sign up for a thing is uh, with a Gmail address, put an extension at the end of it with a plus, yeah. And then, a the per, like, if I'm going to give money to Beto, uh, you know, I'll put my email address plus Beto at gmail.com. And then that, that goes, that, that email address I can follow it to see who he gives it to and who he trades it with. And like, like if I end up getting emails, emails and I have from some unknown candidate down ballot, I'm like, that came from Beto's list. Like how did, like, what was the, what was the, 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 the the journey that my email address took to end up in this person's hands? So can you talk about how campaigns use that information to engage with supporters uh, and move them toward being donors and volunteers? Right. I think, listen, in this space, there's obviously some, uh, some campaigns have poor data practices. Grassroots Analytics, we're the largest progressive tech company in the industry. Like we have insanely high data standards for so many reasons. One of which is like, we are a target of like Russia and yep. other crazy I bet. international cyber <laughs> attacks. I actually could not get onto my own computer this morning because I left my keys at my house and it has my like Thunderbolt. Yeah finger pad yeah anyway <laughs> your biometric scanner we take that security extremely seriously yeah. the problem in this space is that uh with email security and then i'll get back to like how yeah. do you yeah. build a, a a donor base and trust with with donors and supporters i mean the problem in this industry on some level is that there are extremely unsophisticated state house city council very small campaigns that do not have the money or ability to have strong safeguards and random staff members or volunteers can walk out with a list of emails and uh and share that and yep. listen i obviously democratic organizations democratic parties should share best practices with those folks but on some level um you know we want city council and state house to be able to yeah. raise grassroots dollars yeah can't just cut them out of this process and they don't have finger pad thunderbolt right. key protections on consumer data which again i, I don't know how to solve yeah. that problem yeah um that's as, a different problem from the one i'm talking about but as far as building a, a a supportive and trusted trusting donor base i think you know there's so many tactics one you got to talk to people uh assume people are smart and get transparent with them let them know why you need money and also don't always ask them for money. I mean, I'm trying to think of very well-run email programs. 
Becca Bainlett is someone, I'm from Vermont. She just got elected to the House. I mean, Becca is a public school teacher in Vermont. She was the state senator. She was an underdog in a really tough three-person primary in Vermont. And she ended up overcoming her opponents through having really solid low-dollar fundraising because she let her supporters know, like, listen, you want to elect a sixth-grade teacher to the House of Representatives in this state? This is what it's going to take. I'm going to need some money because yep. my opponents are way more financially well-connected. And and she didn't ask for money all the time. And she celebrated little victories. She said, today we we won the debate. And, and her, you know, it's connecting with their supporters. I mean, there's obviously higher-profile examples. Senator Fetterman, yep. amazing, uh, unique. I do think one thing that uh, Democrats, and I've been telling all the campaigns we work with this for the past few years, we because the Democratic Party and the digital infrastructure is so the data is getting pretty sophisticated, the methods, the A-B testing. We have started testing ourselves into a space where people no longer like our emails and text messages and communications. If you A-B test what gets the most opens and the most clicks and let this AI algorithm run wild, at the end of the day, your emails will say, Michelle Obama was just kidnapped. Give me $5 and she'll be released by the Taliban. I've wanted to talk about this exact thing because I've noticed it happening. We're already, uh, you know, people talk all the time, like, when are computers going to take over? I say computers have already taken over. They already have. Even in this industry. We should not be letting computers dictate to us what, how we communicate with our supporters. And the, you know, there's no way to A-B test this, and it's not the best data practice to just let Senator Fetterman yeah. write a lot of his own yeah. emails yeah. in really weird memes of uh, the Simpsons. <laughs> and anyone that works in this space with a strong data background would scream, no, don't yeah, let don't him do let this. Him do this might right. go terribly. But that unique angle, connecting yeah. with supporters around something goofy or whimsical, yeah. it's... it's uh, Donors and supporters have found that so much more refreshing. And I think yeah. this cycle, yeah, let's rid ourselves of this A-B yeah. testing overlord that this we've is... all pledged our allegiance to. And let's, Jeff Jackson is a great, I love Jeff Jackson, not just because I supported him, but uh, he is a member of Congress from the Charlotte area in North okay. Carolina. He writes all of his own emails. And they are, one, he wrote this crazy story about how he some lady lost her dog one time while he was knocking doors and he recovered the dog who I think was named Fufu and gave it back to the lady. And at the end of the day, the story had some nice, clean uh, ethic that he was suggesting and it didn't ask for money. And I read this email. I was like, this email is adorable. Mm -hmm. Like this is, and it got so popular and he blew up online and got way more followers who I'm sure gave him all this money at the end. It's like, let's stop AB testing ourselves to death here and write like cool yeah. Fun, authentic yeah. emails about what's going on okay. in your we, life. I want to I want to dig into this a little bit because yeah. this is this is a perfect analog to what I think is wrong. One yeah. of the things that I think is wrong with the media environment, which is the people who write the headlines are not the people who write the stories. And now right. just wait until you put this new AI chat GPT in charge of of writing the headlines because you will end up with exactly the same thing because the computer the algorithm doesn't really care about facts. All it cares about is the incentive you've trained it to achieve, like the, the goal, the, yeah. op- the thing you've trained it to optimize for, which is, does this thing convert? Does it seize attention? Does it hijack human attention and motivate you enough to open your wallet and give, right? And that, and, and, and it doesn't matter at that point whether the email is true. And I've noticed this trend, both from the emails on the right and the emails coming from the left, how, how sort of hair on fire that the, 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 the it's like 
Nancy Pelosi emailing me and telling me that like, you know, like it's an app, it's a five alarm fire. It's an emergency. Like, like this does not sound like you. First, first of all, this is not you. Right. So, and you and I know she's not writing these emails. Yeah. Donors don't know that. They think this is, this, they think this is what's actually happening. And I, it's just created, I, so I'm with you. It's created this really negative set of incentives for the people who are writing the headlines. And, um, and if we, <laughs> just just wait until AI starts writing these things, right? I like, mean, uh, you don't have to wait. Uh, there are <laughs> there are several large democratic digital firms that have enlisted AI to write their emails. Which oh my god! I mean, I got a, I like blocked my own computer from LinkedIn a few <sighs> months ago because it's also a social media and causing me to be a worse version of myself. But I saw all these posts about chat. What is chat this? GPT? It's called Chat GPT and yeah. how it's going to change. Not just uh, fundraising emails, but sales emails, yep. work emails, all this. And I mean, there are articles in the Atlantic from English teachers saying that students don't have to write papers anymore because of this app. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. yeah. We need to start rewarding yeah. uniqueness. We need to start rewarding originality, originality creativity. creativity yeah. I, all these people, I, I, uh, there was this amazing exhibit in the Hirschhorn. Um, I wish I remember this artist's name. She's a material artist out of New York. I think Lori something. And it, I'll look, I, maybe we'll look this up after, but there was this great exhibit and the title was, uh, if you think technology is going to solve your problems, you don't understand technology and you don't understand your problems. <laughs> and it's like, man, do we, do we as political fundraisers or Democrats not understand our problems? Because our problem is not that we need more content that right. raises five alarm fire, fires and has all the same tired yeah, stuff yeah. about Republicans or dysfunctional. Yeah. It's like we need unique, yeah, creative, yeah, yeah. Uh, capture audiences yeah. with real ideas, honest, vulnerable. I mean, the funny thing is these five alarm fires. Like the the if you if you compare like a a a generic Democratic fundraising email to a generic Republican fundraising email for the similar office, uh, on the Democratic side, the five alarm fire tends to be. Something about like we will no longer have democracy and nobody will be able to vote tomorrow mm -hmm. if you don't give five dollars right yeah. now. Whereas on the right, it's very it's extremely loyalty driven and like your name's not gonna be on this very important list that I'm gonna show hmm. to the boss man and he's gonna be mad at you if you don't give five dollars, right? It's 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 weird. Uh, but they both raise the same kind of uh, sort of extreme emotional response, um, depending on who they're talking to. But I, I'm, I'm totally with you, and I would love to see how that goes in in the industry, like how people, how candidates begin to see the upside of of writing their own emails or or not following the sort of conventional wisdom right now, which is still A-B testing and, and, uh, and technology-driven optimization. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I've slowly changed on this issue. I remember uh, telling, now who is it? Now, now Congressman Frost that it's insane that he wants to write off and sign off on all of his own emails just a year ago. But now I've come around totally on this to where I think most members of Congress if they are interesting people like Congressman yeah. Frost is, um, they should write their yeah. own. This is what I did today. Yeah. Don't even ask for money. This yeah. is what I did today. Send it out. People would find that interesting, I think. Yeah. Well, totally. the voting endlessly for uh, 
Hakeem Jeffries for five days. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that it wasn't really that? But I think once they yeah. get started, it'll become yeah. a little more interesting. Yeah, enter enter the picture of Katie Porter in orange to match the book jacket of the book she was reading, which was the subtle art of not giving a fuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so um, one more one more thread here. Uh, and, and I think we've I think we've touched on this a bit, but I want to if there's anything else we mm-hmm. should cover about the types of tension that can arise when you have um, traditional fundraisers who are focused on finding bundlers, right, and people to host fundraisers and do the glad handing, and then the digital camp where you're trying to push for more donors to give smaller amounts. I I I know how this plays out in uh, in Republican circles. Um, but I have this hunch that it's different in democratic circles. I don't know why. Maybe it's not. But, um, but on this front, um, you know, I want to talk. I want to talk about the the tension or you know symbiosis, if you have it, with between what grassroots analytics does and the role of these traditional high dollar fundraisers and how you guys yeah. work with them or whether there's tension. Um, and uh, there, and back in 2019, the Intercept ran this article about grassroots analytics. And there's this quote in that that I thought was just, I, I'm sure you're, you weren't thrilled about it. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. But there's this quote that says, you know, a fundraiser gave it anon- it's anonymously, quote, talking, talking about you and your company, yeah. quote, uh-huh. they're donor pimps. That's all they are. If you don't know people, if your staff doesn't know people, then you actually shouldn't run for office. You're not actually a good candidate. End right. quote. So let's unpack that in the in the context of like the tension within the industry between between these different sort of fundraising factions. Yeah, I, I think there has been a tension here, but I think that one it that tension is ameliorating and the the successful high dollar I mean grassroots analytics now we do every we also do high dollar fundraising for campaigns and help with them with high dollar fundraising because we're now this huge tech conglomerate. But we <laughs> uh the the tension I think on the Democratic side has ameliorated a bit and I think really good high dollar fundraisers, they see the grassroots fundraising uh, universe and they say, I bet a lot of these people could be high dollar prospects. Almost always people become a donor for the first time because city council, state house, local congressperson, someone they know, or there's a real issue in their community. um, And there's an election in a community that had been pretty politically inactive for a while. I think the best example of this is Jessica Cisneros, who is maybe the best person I've ever met in this space. Like what a golden person, like incredible, like the best person I've ever met. Jessica was a immigration attorney, mm. sort of uh, not, it's not quite like public defense, but you know, they're working in clinics, oh, yeah. helping people at the border, yeah. get out of horrible conditions and stuff. And the district is Laredo, Texas along the border. It's not like one of the most thriving economic areas in this country. And Henry Cuellar has been the congressman there for 20 years. He's like the most Republican Democrat in Congress. And is so politically the most Republican Democrat in Congress. Yeah, okay. for sure. He votes okay. with Trump like seventy five or voted with Trump like seventy five percent. Anyway, but all this to say, it's like you know she decided to run against Cuellar as a twenty six year old, and so many people in that community got involved with her campaign and got into politics mm. for the first time. And you know, some folks in in, in the larger tech in you know in Greater Texas got involved with that campaign, and she probably brought in brought in thousands of first time donors to that yeah. campaign. And you know, a lot of those folks don't have that much money. They chipped in $25 to Jessica at some like local community barbecue. And, you know, they they don't have it, but they'll become donors to future Texas campaigns, small dollars. But what good high dollar fundraisers will notice is 
if Jessica brought in 5,000 first-time donors, I bet if some of them could be high-dollar donors. Yeah. And sure enough, grassroots analytics, all sorts of, there's all, you know, we have great tech tools to analyze a grassroots donor list and figure out, you know, this person does have more capacity. And, and some of those folks now are large donors who've gotten involved with a lot of races. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that tension sort of quieted down on our side. Okay. Before I let you go, um, anything else we didn't touch on that is uh, interesting? You think our our listeners would appreciate anything else that's interesting? I don't know. I this mean, is, I really wanted to like. I, I think we've done this thoroughly, but I wanted to pull back, sort of like, let's go inside this sausage factory because it, yeah. because of, because of how influential it is on campaigns, like how it changes things. Yes. Um. And and I and I and I think we've done that. Because I wanted people to see, okay, here's yeah. what's behind that email that you just got or that text that you just got and the business I mean, of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. The phenomenon I've become that is most on my mind this week after watching like 17 separate yeah. uh, major campaign launch uh, plans come across my desk in these past, just past week. It's it's like January, what is it? January 9th. Yeah. So many very important House Senate races. I've seen the launch plans. People are launching... Like now, like yeah. we're about to this week, there's going to be some serious launches. We're going to have house. Not for president. <laughs> Not well on the Republican but side sure. for president. They yeah, will, they right. will launch yeah, yeah, super yeah. early. I, I, uh, and on the Democrat, I mean, I, there will be Democrats that challenge. I mean, I don't think Joe Biden's done a great job. No, I what I mean by that is the, 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 the it, it is not surprising anymore if people are launching presidential campaigns right now, but if they're launching further down ballot house, races, like state, that's campaigns, huge, uh, gubernatorial campaigns. It's, uh, the current fundraising system, especially with the the growth of grassroots fundraising, um, it really encourages folks to launch earlier and earlier because it does take time to build a grassroots supporter list and turn folks from, I'm interested in John Fetterman's campaign to, wow, John Fetterman's really doing something cool to, you know, I'm going to pitch in 20 bucks. That is like a six-month process. Yeah. And if you are trying to run for office as a grassroots Democrat, it's like you got to run launch yeah. early. you got to give yourself time to wine and dine your supporters and let them know, let them start to build emotion and start caring about you. And, you know, I'm not sure what this is going to do for our democracy, but it's basically going to turn politics into a 24 yeah. seven. We just had an election. Yeah. The next election is not until like November, 2024. Yeah. And most of the, basically all of the most important races in 2024, we will know the candidates in the next few months. Um, Every year, it seems to move up two or three months. Yep. It literally it does. Just when I think it's impossible that it starts sooner, it's yeah. the next it year. Starts it starts sooner. sooner. And yeah. when we see all the major races launch in January 2023 for November 2024, my question is like, when does it stop? Do people start launching for campaigns two and a half years down the road before the other the previous election yeah. has even ended? I'm not sure, but uh, it's something that's been on my mind. I don't even know if you can file paperwork that early. Can you? I think you could file you could announce, like four years. You probably yeah. could. Yeah. Even, even two elections ahead of time. And what does that do to the dynamics of a campaign? <laughs> yeah. Maybe people <laughs> if you have, a, if you have somebody announced in the middle of a campaign that they're going to run for the next election, the following that, like, yeah. <sighs> Troubling. Yeah. Not good. Okay. Before I let you go, where should people find you? I'm not going to find you on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> they're not going to find you on social media. Where, where do you want them to uh, look you up? Yeah. I mean, if, I, the, the the folks I really want to get in touch with grassroots analytics are if you are you see an issue in your community you uh 
thinking about running for school board, city council, state house, state senate, house, all the way up to the top. Um, you want to run. You maybe aren't sure um, if you're, you're going to be a candidate or, you know, you, you just are interested in what the best path, like what the best path forward is, what gives you the best chance to win and represent your community in a competitive election. Reach out to our staff, grassrootsanalytics.com. We got 50 full-time staff. They're more than happy to uh, to, to help you out and uh, get you on a path to, to, to winning your election. I was just thinking how cool it would be if like there's a politicology listener out there who's like, yeah, I've been thinking about running and even if for something local. And if you don't know the first thing about putting together a campaign, this is a great first stop. A I'll tell great you this. first stop. I've done media in the past, although my staff doesn't love when I do it because <laughs> I tend to go off the rails. But uh, I had done media in the past, and I it's almost a guarantee that one of your listeners will reach out to us and, yeah. and, and express interest for school board or city council. And that's amazing. That, yeah. That's going to make me sleep super well. <laughs> and you know what? If the person is willing to have the press, I'll let I'll let you know when that happens, yeah. and you can reach out, and maybe the, yeah. maybe they could come on politicology cool. and be like, "I'm running for school board. <laughs> I decided to do it. <laughs> I'm running for school board in Milwaukee. Let's go, oh, man!" But it's some of those it's some of those smaller down ballot races that are the most important, and like you know, I like I, I did not fully appreciate what the role of a state auditor was until I talked to Rob Sand, Iowa, came on the show. Amazing guy. Like, amazing yeah. guy. Longtime grassroots client. Absolutely love Rob. Dude, he's a, he's he's awesome. He needs to come back now that he won, barely. Like, yeah. congrats, Rob Sand. Um, but, yeah, uh, this, is a, this is a participatory thing that we're doing called democracy. And, like, if you, if you have even the little littlest inkling that you might be able to serve your community in some way and you have time and the heart to do it, like do it. I, yeah. I, I just, uh, you know, we have over a thousand, basically every democratic campaign is a client of ours in some way. And at the end of the cycle, uh, November, I just wrote, like I send a consolation email to a lot of folks we work with who lot, you know, most yeah. candidates that run lose. Like that's the sad yeah, that's reality works. of how yeah. democracy goes. But if and, you do it right, you were still better off for the experience. Right. You know, and I, I, that's what I say. I always say, it's like, listen, put yourself out there. Like maybe it's a red seat. You're trying to run in as a Democrat and there's no chance of winning, but there's so many positive things that running, like bringing in local volunteers. I always remember not to talk about Maxwell all the time, but Maxwell yeah. has such an amazing community of like local high schoolers, youth volunteers who like find community in his office, volunteering and supporting his campaign. It's so beautiful. And also just like the young lives who like people that will look up to you as a role model say, yeah. wow, that's someone that looks like me from my place. And they put themselves out in front of their community yeah. and said, I want to represent and like, maybe I can do that when I, you know, there's so many great byproducts running for office besides just the, the winning yeah. and losing. Totally. Totally agree. Danny Hogan Camp, thank you for uh, for being here, sharing some of your experience. Ron, it's fantastic. Always a pleasure. <laughs> All right, see you, man. And thank you to everyone at home, or if you're on the go, for listening today. I thought this was an important thing to do because we've talked about this topic uh, in the way that uh, campaign practitioners do, but I wanted to bring you sort of into this world so you understand what's going on uh, behind the scenes. So if you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us as always, as you know, at podcast at politicology.com. And if you have a minute, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. It helps us rise in the rankings and helps new people discover politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.